Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast. You can hear us on the Compliance Podcast Network or wherever you hear your podcasts. We are sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights, and Sarah Hayden from Corporate Compliance Insight is one of our hosts today. I also, Alan Hunt, will be co-hosting today's roundtable. We will be discussing neurodivergent workers and how compliance can meet them where they are. We have two experts on this topic as our guests today. First, we have Asha Palmer. She is the Senior Vice President of Compliance Solutions at Skillsoft. Asha oversees the product strategy and development of Skillsoft's compliance learning solutions and is responsible for ensuring that compliance content and platform is fit for purpose. She joined Skillsoft because of her extreme passion to advance and enhance the ethics and compliance community, profession, and practice through technology and learning. Throughout her career, Asha has developed, enhanced, and optimized effective ethics and compliance programs for hundreds of companies worldwide. Her passion and expertise in, are in the effective program development enhancement, training and engagement, anti-bribery and corruption, risk assessment, and yes, can we say it, making compliance fun. Asha is well known for pushing compliance out of the box. We're thrilled to have you, Asha. Our other guest is Jason Meyer. Jason is the founder and president of Lead Good Education, a compliance and ethics consulting firm that produces custom education and engagement, supports in-house compliance teams, and enhance higher ed compliance programs. He's the founder of Meyer Business Law, a boutique firm dedicated to the legal needs of small businesses and entrepreneurs. In 2023, Jason's companies jointly launched the Neuro Inclusion Initiative, a source of workshops, proven best practices, and expert counsel to help organizations embrace and include the 20% plus of the workforce that is neurodivergent and compliantly engage those team uh, members in the organization's missions and values. The Neuro Inclusion Initiative focuses on supporting compliance and HR teams, as well as managers and leaders. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. It's a thrill. Oh, Ellen, thanks so much for kicking us off and for those introductions. I am so excited to be here today. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I feel seen as someone who is proud to admit, happy to admit, or no problem admitting that I have ADD, and I like to consider it my superpower. But at the same time, it it also trips me up on a regular basis. So talking about this is very helpful. And I know that I'm not alone. There are going to be many listeners who are tuning into this topic because it's deeply personal for them. When we talk about being neurodivergent, though, that that word, that topic, is it an umbrella term? Are we talking about a lot of different things? I think maybe how we want to kick off today is just to begin by defining what do we mean when we say neurodivergent? And Jason, if we could start with you, in your work, how do you define neurodivergent? Sure, Sarah, and, and thank you, and thanks, Alan. And it's it is a thrill and an honor to be on to be on Quick. 
and to be included in this august company. It is an umbrella term, Sarah. Here's the thing. No two humans are alike. We always say that. No two people are the same. That means no two brains are the same. We are a neurodiverse species. That's just how it happens. And each of us think and process information and process sensory input in different ways. It's just that some of us, I guess you could say, are more different than others. Some people's way of thinking and processing information, if you will, falls more to the outside of an imaginary bell curve. Within the human species, there are typical groupings of neurological traits. We can call that neurotypical. And then there are less typical ones, and there are names for these less common neurological expressions. When certain traits fall together, we might call that expression autism. When other traits present together, we call that expression attention deficit. There are other broad terms like executive function, sensory integration issues, dyslexia. It goes on. And you can think of all of these as being forms of neurodivergence, which just means, again, thinking and processing information differently than typical. So that leaves a lot of room for interpretation. I think all of us feel like we fit that definition somehow, some of the time. And I think that's I think that's actually a very important point is that everyone does have their own ways. And some of these get labeled and some don't. And a lot of people have issues that have no labels. Yeah. But if it is something that affects you so profoundly that it interferes with the way you can perform in the workplace, that's when we really need to pay attention to it in in business as leaders in business, correct? Yeah, that's right. And for many people who would fall into the category of neurodivergent, it's non-apparent. They may be expert at masking some or all of their traits. They may mask where they don't even need to mask. Often, as you said, it can be a superpower in terms of having some particular way they think or process of information that gives them an advantage in certain circumstances. But then there are other places where they may not fit in, where they may be working harder than everyone else or than most other people, and it's not even clear that's what they're doing. But for those of us who are in the business of getting information and key ideas and key missions and values to people in our organizations, we have to be attuned to these different ways of processing that information. Sure. And that's just like a marketing thing. You have to know your audience. Yeah, that's exactly right. Asha, I'm curious, does this definition align with your experience? Yeah. Thank you both for having me here today. I think I'm glad you went to Jason first because his definition was a lot more technical. I think for someone who... Uh, is in the compliance field and has been in the compliance field for a very long time. When we started or floating, <clears throat> excuse me, floating this topic, I actually had to go to the definition because I think it's something, it's a term we live with. We're like neurodivergent or neurodiversity, and we need to make sure we're having accommodations for neurodivergent employees. But what does that mean? And so I went back to the basics and I had to go to the definition of what it meant. And that's why I appreciate Jason's um, definition, which is spot on. It is how your brain functions may be a little bit different than what Western medicine has defined as typical. And quite frankly, as you said, Sarah, 
that's most of us, if we're honest, diagnosed or undiagnosed, right, on a Monday or on a Friday, right? And so as we think about people's brain functioning differently, I think what's important for us as compliance professionals, particularly, is what does that mean for us? How do we make sure that we are considering different brain functions, diagnosed and undiagnosed in the services that we provide. And so when I look at neurodiversity, neurodivergence, I really think about how do we know what it means? How do we define what it means and what it can mean? And then how do we adapt what we're doing in the workplace? Not only to make sure that people who are diagnosed neurodivergent are able to exist and function in their jobs, but also to make sure that we encourage people who are undiagnosed to really come forward and have that psychological safety in the workplace to be able to speak up and say, this isn't working for me. I need something differently. I think starting with that definition is very critical, particularly for some of us who don't live in the definition on a daily basis. I love the way you put that, Asha, the notion of there being this sort of psychologically safe space where you can speak up and say, this is what I'm experiencing. This is who I am. I think that's what we all want in, in some way. Engaging that population, I think, is key. And Asha, you hit on that point that it diagnosed, undiagnosed. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, one of the things that I have found is we're still in our same kind of one-size-fits-all training and communication matter mode. We get it to everybody, check the box that we got 100% of everybody who was at work, not only has trained and we're done, right? It's still very much a check in the box. So what I'm interested in is, Jason, what challenges have you experienced in engaging this population when we have this kind of online, roll it out of the box approach? Yeah. And, and the first one right there is what you said, one size fits all, right? If you expect that, you will be disappointed because you're not speaking you're not speaking to your audience, as Sarah put it. One, one core of what inspired our initiative is that compliance and ethics have these critical messages. It's central for risk management. Often these messages have a moral imperative. And can we be satisfied knowing that 20% and probably more than 20% of our teams are just not receiving those messages? So you can think of them as not listening on the frequency down which you're broadcasting. The challenges, what do these challenges look like specifically? There are really many manifestations, in part because there are many forms of neurodivergence, but I think there's some prime examples. One thing to think about would be, what is the cognitive load? That's the psychological phrase. Again, a lot of people who experience neurodivergence, and let's say particularly things like attention deficit, they're working harder than everybody else to try to keep up, to try and get these messages. So are we just loading more onto, their, onto this cognitive challenge or are we making things easier to digest? In the world of e-learning, I think you th see things like, you know, the assessment is delayed, right? You're going to be sitting here for 45 minutes. The assessment comes at the very end. That's the one for credit. Good luck for me and, frankly, most people to really have great, really wonderfully retain what happened in the first 10 minutes. I think the process of forcing me to absorb audio and visual signals 
at the same time. For instance, it's narrated and the narration runs in closed captioning and I can't turn it off. For some people, trying to process the two of those at the same time is just a cognitive overload. And a big thing would just be time, long courses, not having an option of bite size. And it is about options. This is about, can I find the medium and the delivery that works for me? But this is the same thing. I was listening to the podcast episode with Mary Shirley at the end of the year. It's the same thing she talked about with her new book, right? That she wanted to present how compliance leaders should do their work in bite-sized bits because she said that she and others prefer to eat the elephant one bite at a time. Are we giving our neurodivergent populations that same option with what we're delivering? I think things we do in compliance and ethics that are about reading, text-heavy communications, policies that are all text. Here's your 60-page policy book. Here's your 40-page employee handbook. It's all text, right? If I have a reading issue that could be attentional or dyslexia, that's going to be a problem. I think even things about expecting a particular emotional intelligence and EQ on the part of our learners, like a scenario-based learning, and I'm supposed to pick up the emotive content, and it's really the emotional content that tells me whether what the harasser did was wrong, for example, right? If I'm not good at picking up those emotional signals because of my neurodivergence, then all I see is someone harassing. Without the companion message, that was wrong. Now you've normalized the behavior. So these are just some of the many examples that can come up in what we do routinely. And I I think, Ellen, in terms of what do we we see? I have heard for years from from compliance professionals, oh, we hit this plateau in engagement. We're doing these surveys. We just can't get past 85% engagement, no matter what we do. Maybe that aligns with the percentage of your workforce that has a neurodivergence. That means they just are not receiving what you're sending. That means we have to send it differently. Asha, tell us about what you've been experiencing and what your thoughts are about getting us out of the box. Yeah, I love what Jason said about the elephant and eating it one bite at a time, because the reality is no one wants to actually eat the elephant. (laughs) No one actually (laughs) wants to sit down and take their compliance training anyway. So then if you make it even more painful for an individual who may be neurodivergent, then you're going to lose the learner. And I love the hashtag don't lose the learner. And I think that is where we have to think about, are you losing the learner? And I think the reality is the way that most compliance training is developed loses the learner, particularly a neurodivergent learner. And everything I think that Jason just said is right about having those options that meet people where they are. And again, I think that is something we've historically lacked in compliance training, Um, which is part of the reason I got involved in compliance learning was because we were missing the mark. Um, And we have still a long way to go to make sure that the messages that we present are digestible, are intentional, are uh, varied, right? Whether it's emotional, non-emotive, whether it's a scenario based, you got to give the learner those options so that they are able to learn in a way that they can learn. I give the example of my kids. I have three children. None of them learn the same way. 
None of them. And I have to know that and teach the messages I need them to learn differently to the three of them. I think as we think about some of the challenges uh, in preparing for this, I wrote down a few challenges. Obviously, there's meeting the neurodivergent learner where they are. And I think Jason really covered a lot of the elements that we think about. One of the greatest things that I learned in getting involved in compliance learning was it shouldn't be compliance people developing learning. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Employ instructional designers who are trained in how to understand a learning environment, understand learners. And so when we talked about some of the things that we do at Skillsoft to make sure that we are inclusive of a neurodivergent population, I asked my learning designers, what are you doing? Right. What are you making sure that we are doing on a daily basis? So very similar to what Jason said, making sure we're balancing the content load, making sure we are managing the learner's anxiety. Anxiety is a huge piece of how we develop learning because we know that neurodivergent learners experience a lot of anxiety because they go to the e-learning assuming that the e-learning provider has not thought about their learning needs. And so it comes with a lot of anxiety. And so how we balance and make sure we address that anxiety with the layout of the content, with things um, in the UX. So all of those things are, are considerations. Also making sure that it is a positive learning environment, making sure people know they can stop and pick it up later, making sure people are, are things are presented in manageable chunks is very important. The other thing that is very critical for us is making sure we engage the compliance practitioner who is disseminating this learning. Because if they are not aware of the neurodivergent learner, they're going to send that 45-minute course. They are going to measure on the back end how much time you spent in that 45-minute course. And they may even judge the learner to say, oh, you don't understand the concept because you spent two hours in the course and not 45 minutes as it was designed to. So there's a big factor in what we do to educate the practitioners or the administrators who are disseminating the learner learning to say, have you considered your neurodivergent population? Have you considered breaking it up? Not just because it's best practices, right? It's a good way to get some best practices in there anyway, because quite frankly, no one wants to sit for a 45 minute course course compliance. No. Nobody wants that elephant, right? But I think it is a way to make sure we're meeting everyone and having some equality in how we present that learning. The last thing I'll say, and I think one, the last thing I'll say is just one of the big challenges we want to make sure is the courses that we present also give awareness to what is defined as neurotypical employees, the knowledge of what a neurodivergent employee may be experiencing and going through. And so that is also a big challenge for us because not only do we need to make sure that the neurodivergent uh, employee is safe and psychologically safe, but giving people around that employee the capacity and the capability to help foster a healthy environment for a neurodivergent employee is very difficult and something that we are focused on in our learning. Sorry, yeah, certainly, you were going to say uh, something. I, I, um, yeah, excuse me for, for, for interrupting. The, what I was going to say is, and then there are challenges beyond learning 
And to just pull out one of them for compliance and ethics professionals, it's how is this built into your, are you aware of the risks that are being run? Is this part of your risk assessment? Are you thinking about how you're handling the neurodivergent employee as an employee, interactions with management, interactions with HR, interactions with each other? To what extent have we picked those up and have we increased awareness among our teams and our managers of, of what to do? With the added issue that sometimes a neurodivergence will rise to the level of a ADA disability, and sometimes it won't. And sometimes we need to start the dialogue about accommodations, and sometimes we shouldn't. And that can be a very, that's a very nuanced challenge. That gets tricky, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love what I'm hearing that these tools exist to meet the learner where they are, that that sort of thing. But here I am, not as a compliance officer, but just as a journalist and as someone who has ADD, I'm imagining myself in the workplace. And I'm imagining the employer saying, okay, Sarah, we know you can't sit still and you fidget and you have a tiny little attention span. So we've got this special environment and this special test instrument for you. So I've just been outed whether I want to be or not. It's not like being in school and then saying, Sarah, you get some left-handed scissors it's a little more loaded than that. So how do we handle that in the workplace? How do we tell employers and management to deal with this sensitively and and legally? Yeah, that, that is it. This may be the, this may be the first challenge that companies and, and teams have to tackle. There's, there's something that, that we call the identification and inclusion conundrum which basically boils down to you won't know. It's not possible for you to be aware of everyone who's neurodivergent. It's not apparent often. It's This is complicated by the understandable reticence of many workers to disclose their neurodivergence. They have fears of stigma or discrimination or unrealistic expectations or being put, oh, then we're going to have you debug our code because we hear that people like you are great at debugging code. I don't want to debug code. You can't You can't expect neurodivergent employees to self-identify. You can't require them to self-identify. You can't assume that you'll be able to identify them yourselves. Anything that's based on separate but equal, we we already know separate but equal is a problem to begin with, but anything in this space based on separate but equal isn't going to work. You're not going to know who the neurodivergent employees are, so it's not going to be effective to impose additional burdens or wholly different training on them. And you know what else? It's not inclusive by its very nature. So what do we do? We check our expectations at the door. And our goal has to be to make our culture building and our training and our messaging neuro-inclusive. That is to emphasize approaches with the phrase we use is things that are good for all, but critical for some, right? When we talk about making information bite-sized, right? That's going to be critical for people with certain neurodivergences. You know what? It's great for everybody. A comparison we often make is to curb cuts, the original ADA accommodation. We put in curb cuts, and we did that for people who are in wheelchairs or or somehow other had a mobility issue. But you know what? We're pulling that suitcase with wheels or pushing a stroller. That curb cut's pretty great. It was critical for some, but good for all. How do we build that into our programs and into our leadership. Asha, do you agree that there's still a stigma in the workplace? What are some strategies or solutions to address that? 
first I'm writing down that critical for some <laughs> good for all, because I love that. Um, and I think it, I mean, it, it was the point I was trying to make not so eloquently, which is bite-sized compliance training is good for everyone. <laughs> and so let's do it. And I think that's where that awareness comes in. I do think that there is still an awareness gap about what it means to be neurodivergent and what are proper inclusive techniques or accommodations that can be made for neurodivergent individuals. And so for the sake of sounding like I come from a learning company, I think we need to learn more about what it means, right? And we just created a course, interestingly, this year called Non-Disability Accommodations, because we always associated accommodations with disabilities. If you had a disability, you got an accommodation. There are accommodations needed and necessary, maybe, for people in non-disability forms, neurodivergence being one of them. Think of pregnancy, right? That That's another one. And so as we think about what this means and how do we create inclusive practices for individuals who may need accommodations, but don't want to have that separate environment that you're talking about, or as you said, be outed and feel different. How do we make sure that we do things that are inclusive? So I think learning about it is a good start. And I think particularly, like I said, from a compliance perspective, to see what that means for the services that, that we deliver. As Jason said, maybe self-righteous for us compliance folks, the messages we need to get out to everyone are important, everyone. And so if we are getting out important messages that aren't meeting 20% of our population, we need to change what we are doing. And so as we think about that criticality, I think partnerships with human resources professionals, partnerships with, when we're thinking about learning, instructional designers who are thinking about this on a daily basis, we need to start asking those questions about what we're doing and where who it's not getting to and begin to figure out how to get to that population. I look at languages, right? Languages is another element. We deliver training. A lot of people just deliver training in English. And it's, I don't care if it's your first language or not, you're going to learn it because that's all we're going to do. We know that doesn't work. So we need to start, we started having those conversations about what do we do differently? We need to start having those same conversations about neurodivergent uh, employees and what do we do differently? I love that both of you refer to it as learning instead of training. Yeah, and Adam Belfour, I think, is the one who kind of points out training and learning are not the same thing. And that in itself is one big step. But I want to pull a little bit more on this thread of diagnosis and identification. I ran across a quote from Steven Spielberg, which I thought was interesting. So I had to read it quickly. He says, dyslexia was the last puzzle in a tremendous mystery that I've kept to myself all these years. Remember, you're not alone. And while you will have dyslexia for the rest of your life, you can dart between the raindrops to get where you want to go. It won't hold you back. On the one hand, fabulous, right? He's beginning to normalize that we're all different, okay? And we're going to have different things that are going to affect us differently. On the other hand, he didn't come out until late, and he's the goat. <laughs> he has every resource he could possibly have. And it made me think, okay, so there, there's Mr. Spielberg. And so I started doing a little more research. 
And I come across Einstein, Musk, Branson, and all of these men who are described as creative geniuses, and it's okay, they have a messy desk, which is, can be an indication of ADHD. Uh, okay, what's going on here, right? And I found out further that boys get diagnosed with ADHD three times more than girls, and two times more with dyslexia, and four times more with autism. So where, where I'm going here is I think there could be a pink tax kind of women aren't getting tested. They are getting identified as girls. And then when they get to the workplace, is there that pink tax of a, another layer of shame, right? A woman who has a dirty desk or messy desk, she's not a creative genius. She's just not up to the task, right? Do we have some stuff going on here that gets a little bit deeper about People who won't even be aware that maybe they've been compensating their whole lives for a the way their brain works. Asha, tell me what you think. A pink tax? Surprising, right? I think not at all. Frankly, not at all. <laughs> We're fresh off of the Barbie movie controversy where Ken gets nominated and the movie yeah. Paul Barbie. So if you're if you want to know whether there's a pink tax, I think the answer is yes. And I think as a mother of two girls and a boy, Michelle Obama had a quote that has always stuck with me that said, "We love our boys and we raise our girls." And when I think of that quote, why it's so profound to me is we teach our girls to push through and you have to be better and you have to be great and you have to do all of the things. And we're like, if our boy stubs a toe, it's run over and see if he is okay. And so I think just we normalize a man's ability to ask for help a little bit more than we do for our girls. And I think that's a historic kind of flip that we've taken because it used to be the man had to push through all of the things. And so I think when we learned that, we did a flip to say, no, young men, you don't have to mask, you know, your pain or your suffering or anything that may be holding back. And so we pushed for diagnosis. We pushed for them to ask for help. And we did the opposite for our women. And so I, I think when I think about just diagnosis and being able to identify it in the workplace, I think the reality is we need to encourage a culture of being able to speak up, says the compliance officer novel, right? <laughs> I just thought of that for the first time right now. No, but you we but we need to encourage that psychological safety for people to be able to advocate for themselves. And that's advocate for themselves in a way where if you need something, if you don't need anything, if you want something, if you don't want anything, you need to be able to say those. If you see something, you need to be able to speak up about that. And so I think as we think about not necessarily us or other individuals diagnosing other people, but allowing people to speak up and advocate for things they need to do their job successfully is something we in compliance should be contributing to on a daily basis. We should also, again, educate ourselves. Knowing those facts, which I did not know before this podcast, let's be clear, is very important because then we can, we can counteract that by encouraging, again, 
all individuals to be able to ask for those accommodations. The last thing I'll say, I talked earlier about the non-disability accommodation of pregnant women, right? So that is probably the opposite end of a spectrum, right? You could tell when a woman is pregnant at work, yet even Pregnant women or women who are nursing weren't able to advocate for themselves in the workplace. And so I think we should take that as a lesson to say, what are we doing that allows people seen, unseen, undiagnosed, diagnosed with non-disabilities to be able to speak up and say, I need this. I need an office that doesn't have a clear window so I can nurse for my child at home because you made me come back after 12 weeks of leave. I need it. I shouldn't have to say that. I think it goes the same for a neurodivergent employee. We shouldn't have to speak up for ourselves. We need to make sure our companies are thinking about this for employees that may need it. Such a great point. One of the things I learned early on when I first became a manager and I had had people, I had somebody pull me aside who I respected very much. And he's, he said to me, Ellen, stop making them tell you what they're doing. You ask them what they need. It made a tremendous difference in my effectiveness, right? And the team and the collaboration, everything else, instead of me assuming, right? Well, I'll assign this person to you to help you instead of saying, do you need help? It's a very simple question. It's not loaded with anything about, I'm trying to find out personal things about you. What do you need? How can I help you? And if I and it's the assuming that's it's the assuming that is the problem here. I mean, I think about your question about the pink tax in, in sort of two different dimensions. And let me say, I'm not a brain scientist. I'm a lawyer and I'm a compliance educator who's read a lot of brain science, right? That difference, that sort of difference in diagnosis, right? Anecdotally, I would say I don't see it because the people who speak to me about this issue resonating with them. They're pretty equally of both genders. I think the data is not at a resting point. And I think we have to have to say these numbers are going to change. We're still learning how things like attention deficit or autism affects genders differently. But we're also seeing a function of assumptions and long-held assumptions and tropes and outdated gender expectations, right? This was the problem originally when we put hyperactivity, the word hyperactivity, in the definition of attention deficit. The ASM, the diagnostic tool, now recognizes you can have attention deficit apart from hyperactivity and impulsivity. Sometimes you see that, sometimes you don't. But when we talked about hyperactivity, oh, now we're thinking about little boys versus little girls and little boys running around, right? And we praise some of those behaviors. So we'd be more likely to get there. I think about little girl tropes, like... Oh, she's a tomboy. Oh, she's bookish, right? When we say things like that, are we actually ignoring or belittling that this is a girl who processes information differently? Mm -hmm. It's the same kinds of assumptions managers make about things like, oh, that employee didn't make eye contact with me. They came in to tell me about something, but they weren't making eye contact with me. They were looking behind me. So I think that they were, that's a sign of concealing something, isn't it? No, it could be a sign of a neurodiversity, of a neurodivergence. There are those who are who have sensory integration issues where if they look you in the eye, they will not hear a word you're saying because the visual content is too strong for them to get pull out the more difficult to pull out auditory content. So we can't make assumptions about things like that either. So again, we have to come to the point 
dump your assumptions, change your approach by recognizing that we are a neurodiverse species, and then do what's good for all and critical for some. Can I add to this? I think one of the critical components that we don't do so well in compliance is, dare I say it, right? Feedback. Mm, And one of my managers, I think all of our managers have told us at some point, feedback is a gift. It doesn't always feel like a gift, but it is, right? But I think we need to ask our employees, again, similar to what you were saying, Ellen, do you need something different? We need to ask that after every training. We need to say, did you do, did you, what do you, what should I be doing differently? And I think when we hear that, we need to then do something differently. And I, I think oftentimes it, compliance can be a one-way communication stream. I'm giving you what I think you need, how you need it, when you need it, in the frequency you need it, in the time I want you to have it. And the greatest thing I've ever done as a compliance professional was not deliver training, learning (laughs) in the way that I wanted it to be delivered. And I think that, again, becomes a challenge is we all like when I'm communicating with my kids, I communicate how I would want to be communicated to. That is the wrong way to communicate. I need to communicate the way that they need to be communicated to. And that's a shift we need to do in our daily lives and in our learning. Because again, if you are only communicating, and this is why policies, procedures, training, like Jason and I are lawyers. If, if we're all like, if we're communicating like a lawyer communicates to another lawyer, we're in trouble. Because most people are not lawyers. And so I think as we think about that with the topic at hand is if you are neurotypical, you're going to communicate in a neurotypical way. You're going to judge people in a neurotypical fashion. That is the wrong way to look at things. And so we need to turn that assumption on its head and really learn, as Jason was talking about, we need to learn about how other people learn and then meet them where they are. Forgive me. I I just, I can't resist the urge to like grossly oversimplify this with an analogy. Oh, when you go to a business dinner now or a business lunch, a buffet, there's always a vegan option or a vegetarian option or gluten-free. I'm not gluten-free, vegan or vegetarian, but that tends to be the way I like to eat. And I'm always glad to see those options. And when it's not presented, you're wait a minute, how dare they only have chicken salad? I get really excited after this conversation, imagining a workplace where everything that might be appealing or needed or necessary for a person is on the menu. That to me, and that's where technology can help. So part of what I focus on as much as the content we deliver and how we deliver it is how technology supports exactly what you were talking about, Sarah, how do we give individuals that option where they're able to choose it. So it's not, I'm putting you in that separate room. You get that, you know, special learning path so that your accommodation is, is outed, but you were able to select, right? Technology can ask you if you're neurodivergent. And (laughs) even the the most mundane administrative part of our learning management systems, do you set up your equivalencies? And this is what we're talking. It comes down to this kind of level, right? Have I given you the equivalencies in my LMS so that if you do this one thing instead of this other thing, you're good. It's even little steps like that are critical, but that awareness of 
know your audience, mm. speak to your audience. And part of what we're trying to do is to build that understanding of what this component of your audience is all about. Small steps, but big impact. Mm -hmm. This is a big topic. And it's one that I know we will discuss again this year on this podcast. I'm so glad that we got to explore it today with these two experts. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge with us and with our listeners. I know that a lot of our listeners are probably going to want to go a little deeper on their own time and maybe in small chunks. <laughs> but what resources would you recommend? And we'll share them uh, in the show notes. If each of you would maybe just tell us a resource or two that you think that folks might want to go a little deeper on. Sure. In terms of sources on the internet, there's something called the Neurodiversity Hub that's good. There's a Mel Robbins podcast on, ADD, on ADHD that's pretty good. If you're an SCE member, I did a presentation at the Compliance and Ethics Institute. Dana Hansen did another one. If you have access to those recordings, I'd recommend those. One thing, though, I think for, for the compliance and ethics world in particular, a lot of what's out there about neurodivergence tends to be like little islands. This is about this particular neurodivergence in this particular situation. So part of what we're trying to do at Lead Good Education is to, to compile these things and focus on compliance and ethics so we have a recognized sort of vetted set of best practices. So I would also invite people follow the Lead Good Education website or follow us on LinkedIn. We offer workshops and we have other resources that we'll give you the link to including our white paper, which focused on trying to help out managers. Excellent. Asha, what are your go-to resources? Yeah, I think whoever your learning provider is, whether it's on the human resources side or the compliance side, they should have a course that covers something like this. And if you haven't taken it, please go and take it. If you are a skill self customer, take our course. But I think the first step is learning and really understanding what it is, how it manifests, with whom and where, and then really taking those next steps to um, understand how it may impact your program. I think the, the critical thing we just want to encourage is there's people in your organization who are probably already thinking about this and partner with them. Call your human resources, your HR business partner and say, how are we thinking about this as an organization? And if not, you have a great opportunity to lead the thinking about that in the organization. So as you get yourself more aware about what it is and how it manifests, also share the love, share the knowledge and create an action plan really to make sure that, and I love what Jason said, it's inclusive. It's what? Good for critical for some, good for all. Love that. <laughs> Taking it. You guys have been wonderful guests. I want to thank you, Asha and, J and Jason, for joining us today. We really have had a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.